The scripture reading today is from the book of Exodus, chapter 3 and chapter 20. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led his flock beyond the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of a bush. He looked, and the bush was blazing, yet it was not consumed. Then Moses said, I must turn aside and look at this great sight and see why the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He said further, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the country of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The cry of the Israelites has now come to me, I have also seen how the Egyptians oppress them. So come, I will lead you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning once again, City Church. You know, as we heard early in the service, today is Trinity Sunday. It's the day in the church calendar when the church worldwide considers how the great God of the universe has revealed God's self to the world as a relationship, as a relationship, the triune relationship of mutual self-giving love and everything in this world, everything in this world from our lives as human beings to the systems and structures that govern our affairs, everything either reflects or resists God 
depending on whether it reflects this pattern of relationship and mutual self-giving love. And so when I was thinking about an appropriate sermon topic for today, I found myself thinking a lot about what it means or about what the names of God are that we have, that we take into the world. And specifically, I found myself thinking about a very old story where God, for the first time, reveals God's personal name to Moses and the ancient people of Israel and instructs them on how to carry that name into the world. And we start off today, the first text starts off with a very humble Moses. This is Moses in the wilderness of Midian. This is Moses the shepherd, Moses the failed former prince of Egypt, a guy who had killed an Egyptian out of a misplaced sense of righteous anger and then buried the body in the sand, a guy now on the run as a fugitive, and by all worldly accounts, basically a failure, a nobody shepherd in the wilderness of Midian. And God appears to this humble Moses and says, look, you are going to go to Pharaoh, the most powerful king in the world. You're going to go to him and tell him, let the people of Israel go from their slavery. And at first Moses protests saying, who am I? Who am I to do such a thing? I'm just a fugitive shepherd. And God says, I'll go with you. And Moses says, okay, well, that's, that's fine. But when I go, Pharaoh and all the Israelites are going to ask, who sent you? What, what God sent you? So who are you? Who are you? What is your name? And God says, I am who I am. I am who I am. I am the Lord, which is our translation of I am Yahweh. Now, right there, we need to notice what's going on because we can't miss how unusual it was for a God, I mean any God, but particularly the great God of the universe, to reveal their personal name, their personal name to a human being. Ancient names had power. They conveyed the essential quality of who you were. They were treated very carefully and they were guarded because if you handed over your name to another, you were giving them some power over you. You were making yourself vulnerable to them. You were giving a little bit of yourself away. Now, I know that's not how we think of names today, but it was very so, very much that way in the ancient world. In fact, the story goes that in ancient Rome, there was actually a secret, authentic name for Rome that was guarded and known only by the priests. And they would guard this secret name of Rome so no enemy could ever learn it because it was believed that if an enemy found out the true secret name of Rome, they could use it like in a curse to, to harm the city. And the crazy thing is these priests guarded the name so well that we don't even know what it is now. It was completely lost to history. It's a complete mystery at this point. But similarly, the ancient Hebrews and many traditional Jews today will not pronounce the name Yahweh to guard it, to guard it with that same sense of reverence and protection. So this was a big deal. God says, I am who I am. I am the Lord Yahweh, and I am compassionate and good. I have seen your distress, your oppression, and I'm going to deliver you. So Moses, 
goes to Pharaoh and after the long back and forth of all the plagues and Pharaoh's resistance and the great Red Sea crossing, we come to the passage in Exodus 20 where the Israelites find themselves gathered once again at Mount Sinai and God says, okay, now that I've saved you and brought you out of slavery, here are the keys for life. Here are the keys for life. Here's how you can live and flourish as my people. And we call these the Ten Commandments. We're not going to go through all of them today at all. We're going to focus on the third one. But it starts off, don't have any gods before me. And then don't create any images, any idols that replace me. And then the third commandment, don't misuse my name. Don't misuse my name. And it's actually a little difficult to see in our text or in our translation. But in this commandment, God is actually reiterating to Israel that God has given God's name away to them and to us. God's given God's name away. Now, our text this morning reads, don't make wrongful use of the name of the Lord. And that's a great summary of sort of the point of the commandment. But it also, unfortunately, glosses over an important Hebrew word, and that word is nasah. It's actually an economic term. And in like many words, it has a distinct image or picture behind it. And the one here is of a, of a merchant bringing a product to market. And then when a buyer selects it, they nasah it. The merchant hands the product over, the buyer takes the product and carries it with them. And that's what God has done with God's name. It's been given away, and now we carry it. We carry it into the world. And I hope you see right there the profound dignity God actually places on human beings, that God would give away God's own name, that God would entrust the name to you, to me, to all people, it's much like the way the Bible says God created all humanity in God's image, which means a lot of things, but importantly, it means we represent God in the world. We represent God in the world, that you are an agent of God in the world. You are an agent of God who carries God's name into the world. And maybe that's a bit of a mind bender for you this morning. Maybe you've never really thought of the third commandment this way. Maybe like me, you grew up just thinking it meant to not swear or not curse or not say, you know, God dang it, God darn it, which, by the way, I often fail at. Or maybe this idea of God, more seriously, this idea of God giving God's name and God's agency to you, you personally, is just something you can't identify with. Because you can't see yourself with that same dignity that same worth that God sees in you. I mean, you might be hearing this and thinking, look, my life's a mess. Like, I can't even renew my car registration on time. All right, that's actually me. I can't actually renew. It never can seem to do it, get my car registration on time. Uh, but more seriously, you might be thinking, look, I am just not the person I once thought I was going to be. My life's been hard. And I'm not proud of who I am. I can't carry God's name. And if that's you, and I know there are people listening today who identify with that, 
you're not alone. That's the first thing, to know you're not alone. In fact, the Israelites couldn't really embrace their dignity at first either. There's a little story back in Exodus 6 where the Israelites are still in Egypt and Moses approaches them, tries to rally them, tries to encourage them, saying, God has chosen you. God's going to deliver you and make you into God's own people, and you're going to be a great blessing to the world. But then we read in Exodus 6-9, Moses told this to the Israelites, but they would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and cruel slavery. They would not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and cruel slavery. Slavery. They couldn't listen to the message about their dignity because their souls had been crushed by their harsh lives. So part of what God's doing by giving God's name away is reforming or rebuilding the people's self-image. God is saying your oppression does not define you. And I'm going to begin to help you see yourself with the dignity and love with which I see you. And so if that's kind of how you feel today, realize this is the God who says, look, I see you in your current distress, in your pain, in your anxiety, in your depression, and I'm here to walk with you through all of that, to remind you that you are so much more than your current struggle. You are so much more than your most recent failure. You're created in my image, and I'm giving you my name to carry into the world. But you might also be hearing this, and for you, it's not so difficult to imagine carrying God's name into the world. You've just never seen a God you like. You've never seen a God who is truly attractive, either to your own life and needs, or to what you know other human beings need. You haven't seen a God whose name you'd want to carry into the world. And it might be that the people who have surrounded you or the churches you've tried to attend have just painted a very different and very negative, graceless, or incomplete picture of God. And that actually brings us to the reason the reason for the third commandment, to why it's so important to not misuse the name of God. Because in giving away the name, in giving us the name, God has actually endowed human beings with great power. Great power to distort the way people see God if we misuse it. And what's even worse, is when we misrepresent God to the people around us, people don't just begin to mistrust us. They begin to mistrust God. I'll say that again. When when we misrepresent God to the people around us, people don't just begin to mistrust us. They begin to mistrust God. God's given human beings enormous power to affect how people actually see God. And so when we misuse the name, and the biblical word here is lashav, when we, when we empty it of its value, when we cheapen it or distort it, the world not only mistrusts us, they mistrust God. And particularly if you identify as a Christian, 
and have spent a long time around church, we often do this by using God's name to justify our own biases or our own self-righteousness. Joy Davidman was an American poet and writer. Also, incidentally, she was C.S. Lewis's wife near the end of her life. And speaking on this point, actually writing on it, on the point of the third commandment, Joy says, we of the churches, so she's speaking to people kind of in and around the church, we of the churches often gather our robes away from contamination and thank God that we are not as other men. Now, this was written in the 50s, so there's a lot of masculine language. We thank God that we are not as other men. We don't despise God's name. In fact, we call upon it constantly to justify ourselves. If we object to meat eating, we declare that God is a vegetarian. If we abhor war, we proclaim a pacifist deity. He who turned, she's speaking of Jesus, he, or let's just say Jesus, who turned water into wine to gladden a wedding is now accused by many of favoring that abominable fluid grape juice. There can hardly be a more evil way of taking God's name in vain than this way of presuming to speak in it. And then here's the key. For here is spiritual pride, the ultimate sin in action, the sin of believing in one's own righteousness. The true prophet says humbly, to me a sinful man God spoke. But the scribes and the Pharisees declare, when we speak, God agrees. They feel no need of a special revelation, for they are always, in their own view, infallible. It is the self-righteousness of the pious that most breeds atheism by inspiring all decent, ordinary men with loathing of the enormous lie. It is the self-righteousness of the pious that most breeds atheism by inspiring all decent, ordinary men and women with loathing of the enormous lie. Joy Davidman does not mix words here. When we use the name of God for our own purposes, when we take our own self-righteous desires and attach them to the name of God, people can see that it's a lie. They can see it. But they don't just turn away from us. They turn away from God, and it breeds atheism. It causes people to lose faith. So, if all of that is the case, if we've been entrusted with a divine name and we can easily misuse it and cause many to mistrust God, how do we honor the name? How do we honor it? How do we not fall into the trap of misusing God's name? The first thing, and probably the most important thing, is you have to know yourself. You absolutely have to know yourself or be on a journey of self-discovery and self-knowledge. You have to know your biases, your strategies for dealing with the world, your preferential ways for organizing the world because you've probably picked a God. You've probably picked a name for God that matches your preferred way of dealing with the world. A God whose name matches your strategy. And we all do it. We all do it. I mean, you might prefer the God of beauty because that gives life more joy and meaning. Or you might prefer the God of knowledge 
because you're just so hungry to understand or the God of prosperity because you want people to flourish, not just yourself or your family, but you want all people to flourish or the God of justice because you've seen power abused and you believe power is necessary to set things right. And the important thing to note is that none of these are wrong. They are all capable of pointing to true attributes of God, but we tend to pick the one or the two that match our biases. And they are far too limited. And in doing that, we distort the name of God that we carry into the world. We actually touched on this this morning. It's kind of cool. We touched on it in the call to confession. You might, might remember we prayed, God, you rejoice in a multitude of names. We try to pin you down. God, you rejoice in a multitude of names. We try to pin you down. Lord, have mercy. You might be like me. You might have spent half a lifetime worshiping at the throne of the God called perfection. The God whose job is to make sure everything is done the right way. For me, At some point, when I was like maybe four or five, a really young child, I quickly determined that the world and its structures can't be fully trusted. And so God became predominantly a force that sets everything right or that guarantees that everything can be made right. And even better, and this is the kicker, somehow I figured out as a kid that I had been appointed appointed God's deputy in this project of making everything right. And so you can imagine how how fun that was for my parents, or even now for Kristen, my wife. And I think I even chose my first career as a lawyer partly because I just got to argue all the time about what was right and to make sure others knew they were wrong. It's quite lovely sometimes. And it can be pretty tempting for a pastor or theologian too. But here's the thing. As I get older, that God that I named perfection, that God looks less and less attractive. It's still my core bias in many ways. It's still my Enneagram type one, if if that's what you're into. But God has done enough work. And sometimes it's been painful work and it's been through a very diverse set of people in my life. God has done work to steadily move that distorted God, I mean perfection, to move that false God off its throne, or that incomplete God off its throne. And I'm realizing there is a far more generous, loving, forgiving, compassionate, inclusive God that is truly holding all things together. And as my view of God changes, it slowly changes my own outlook on life, and what I want to bring into this world. And so today, sitting here today, I know I am carrying a truer name of God into the world than I was 10 years ago. And I trust that 10 years from now, it will be truer still. And honestly, why would I want a God who merely confirms my biases anyway? Why would I want that? I mean, do I really love my neuroses that much? I mean, do you? So 
whatever you've named God, the most gracious thing God can do is to let that false name fall away, to let it fall off its throne, for God to show you that your name for God isn't the true God at all. It's just a shadow of God. It's just a shadow. And honestly, those moments in life when a falsely named God gets nudged off its throne, those moments can feel initially very confusing. They can feel very disorienting. But that's exactly when God is restoring to us a truer sense of reverence and awe. Reverence and awe. Those are two very key words when talking about the third commandment. For you know, um, one of our historic catechisms called the Heidelberg Catechism, you may or may not have heard of it, but it actually emphasizes that reverence and awe are the key, the key to representing God well in the world. Heidelberg says, we should use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe so that we may properly confess God, pray to God, and glorify God in all our words and works. We should use the holy name of God only with reverence and awe so that we may properly confess God, pray to God, and glorify God in all our words and works. Reverence and awe. I've been thinking a lot about awe lately. I actually have, because mostly because I've, I've known I need more of it in my life. And awe is such an amazing concept. You know, in just basic terms, awe is the experience of being in the presence of something vast, of something that transcends our experience in the world. But what's kind of cool is that scientists have actually shown that the experience of awe actually has positive biological impacts as well. Experiences of awe actually alleviate inflammation, and they can regulate and calm our nervous system. But awe is often in short supply in our lives, particularly in high productivity, highly driven cities like ours. But what I'm learning lately is awe can be cultivated. It can be awakened and nurtured. I mean, there are, there are places that awaken awe, often in nature or often through experiencing music, um, maybe especially live music. I know many of us are eager to see live music return as the pandemic subsides, or art of all types. There are practices that cultivate awe, practices like making time when you can to go just look up at the stars at night, or go down to Ocean Beach and watch the enormous waves just crash over the beach. At times, I've even practiced keeping an awe journal. Like it's just right there in my daily planner. It's on my phone because it's always on me. It's just a simple way to do it. For me, it's a daily photo of something that awakened awe in me. And it can be something small, really small, like a, like a hummingbird or a flower I just happened to see on a walk that caught my eye and attention or an expression on one of my kids' faces. The goal is just to capture one awe moment, maybe one per day, to save it somewhere where it can be savored, to let it just sink in, to sort of activate and nurture and cultivate 
the experience of awe in your life. Because we can become, easily become awe deprived. And yet what would it be like if you woke up every morning filled with awe for God, longing to know God, not as the validator of your biases, but as the God who can daily redefine how you understand grace and love for yourself and for all those around you. A God who is constantly revealing how loved and dignified you are and helping you to see every other person the same way. A God who says you can stop your striving. You can stop your struggling to set everything right. The exhausting quest to meet all these goals in your life that you've set. You can stop all that. And God, in fact, said that all the time to the Israelites. God said, be still. Be still and know that I am God. Pause for a moment of awe. Be still and breathe for once. Just breathe for once. You know, scholars for a long time have been trying to discern how to pronounce this name we call Yahweh. It's represented in the Bible by just four Hebrew letters, and they're all consonants. Y-H-W-H. Four consonants. They don't make much of a sound. And the vowels that would have once been there to help us pronounce it, they've been lost. We don't know what they were. So one attempt by a bunch of English scholars a long time ago was to name it Jehovah. And that's not it. You've probably heard that word before, but, but it's wrong, clearly wrong. We've now settled on Yahweh, which might be closer, but we don't really know. And the truth is, there are many Jewish scholars today who look at this word, Y-H-W-H, the sacred word, the personal name of God. And these scholars are actually asking the question that maybe, maybe this was just an attempt to replicate the sound of human breath. That these letters, Y-H-W-H, maybe this word, is just an attempt to sound like human breath. And you can hear it in the word. Yahweh. 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 It sounds like breath. It sounds like breath. And these aren't things you can conclusively prove. It's a theory. It's a good one. Because it shows us a God who is as close to us as the air we breathe. Whose name you spoke with the very first breath you took when you were born into the world and whose name you'll speak with your last breath when you leave the world. God's name on your breath every moment of your life. A God who is this generous with the divine name, infinitely generous, pure grace, pure love, pure love. And in the end, love is the way we carry God's authentic name into the world. We see this much later in the Bible, in 1 John. In that book of the Bible, we read, I think it's 1 John 4, we read, God is love. God is love. God's essential quality, God's true name is love. 
And John says the way people will see the true God in a sea of false names and false spirits is when we embrace God's love for us and then we carry it and put it on display into the world through one another. So may that be true for us at City Church. As we emerge from lockdowns, as we experience the year ahead with so many new beginnings, as we begin to go back out into our city and gather together in person, once again, may we be filled with holy awe and holy love. Amen.